Welcome to the Learn Buddhism Podcast. I'm Alan Pido. In today's special episode, we're going to talk about the new book, Returning Home. This is a book authored by myself and Sanati Vihari Bhikkhu that's a follow-up to the book we had last year related to the COVID-19 pandemic. It provided a 14-day daily practice where Buddhists who were either in lockdowns, temples were closed, a variety of different situations where they were able to practice Buddhism in line with the Buddhist teachings during this COVID-19 pandemic. Returning Home is our sequel or the follow-up or companion to that original book. Now what this one's all about is reintegration back into society. And so what do we mean by that? Well, during the pandemic, a lot of things were unusual, strange, fearful. We did, it was unpredictable. If we talk about impermanence in Buddhism, that's it right there. Dep- dependent origination, causes and conditions, right there. So we saw a lot of Buddhist teachings come full force during the pandemic. And it was very shocking because usually we're used to things like impermanence and dependent origination happening slowly or subtly. Sometimes it comes on fast, but usually we're not even aware of the change. Ourselves is a great example. We're usually not even aware of ourselves. So in Buddhism, we don't have a independent, permanent, unchanging self. We're not the same person, but we believe we are. And I think that's a good example. We believe we're the same entity, the same thing that's constant but we're really not. But it happens sometimes and often very, very slowly and subtly. We don't see those changes. We don't see the the changing nature of self inside us. So when it comes to our society, our world, our relationship, experiences, things, they're all different or they can be different than they were pre-pandemic. So the pandemic, as you're all aware, has really shifted a lot of viewpoints, expectations, and everything else as it relates to our normal life. And that can include, you know, our relationships. Our, do we interact with people in the same way? That even includes our family and friends. Maybe they have different opinions than us. Maybe we've been away from them for a while. Now coming back, it's just different. Maybe we're not tolerant enough. Different things may have occurred with you and with others where it's just not the same. And so the book is all about reintegration, as I mentioned. And this is a free book, just like our prior book was as well. And so I'll have a link to the book inside the description. But when we're talking about reintegration, we want to talk about it in the Buddhist context. So as a Buddhist, you want to, of course, be mindful at all times. But how do you really take in all these changes which really happened suddenly and upended a lot of different things in our world, in our lives, in our minds. How do you take that into context? How do you basically not just reintegrate, but how do you live your life? How do you practice as a Buddhist? So that's what this particular book is all about. And what I like to do today is go through some topics about that, but also the daily practice. You're also going to find on YouTube is going to be a the, the meditations that we have inside this ebook 
is going to be held by Sanati Vihari Bhikkhu on his YouTube channel. He's actually going to go through each of those days, so you can actually follow along in the daily practice as you find it here inside the book, the daily practice. You can also follow along with him on his YouTube channel. And I'll have a link to that inside the podcast description as well. So one of the two things we have at the beginning of the ebook are essays by myself and Sanathi Vihari Bhikkhu. And his one was a great one. It's called The Buddha's Return Home. And this is a good example of what, what we're really talking about here. So obviously the Buddha was not always the Buddha. So he was Siddhartha Gautama before he was the Buddha. He lived in his very privileged, very luxurious life for the time. And he left that to essentially become homeless, to, to shed all that away, to find the truth, and he eventually became the Buddha. What happened was he eventually did return home. Now remember, if you're, if you're not aware of Buddhist history and the story of the Buddha, his father was a high-ranking official. And so when he returned, this was a shock to everybody, but especially his father. His father wanted him to follow in his footsteps. So here comes back his son, who is obviously not going to follow in his footsteps anymore. He's become this religious figure. And it's a polar opposite to everything that he wanted, but it was still his son. So think about that when we encounter maybe your family or friends or somebody who you just now have different opinions with or maybe that that experience that relationship is different in a way look at this relationship right here they were still family but the expectations of his father he still had those expectations he was still holding on to those expectations so now he sees his son come back right so it, it was even more jarring for his father when what does the buddha do with his followers going alms rounds. They're going begging for food. That's, that's what they do on a daily basis. And so this was even, he couldn't even comprehend this because before everything was given to his son. He could have had anything he wanted to eat, but now he's begging. So just this polar opposite, like I mentioned, difference was jarring for his father. So when we're looking at that particular situation, I think it's great. Things have changed, but we have these mental images, as Sanatha Vihari Bhikkhu mentioned in his essay, we have these mental images still clinging, craving inside our minds that's sometimes making us and others react in different ways. We have to be mindful of that. So we may look at another person and go, oh, they've changed. But have we changed? Have you done that self-reflection of that? You may not even seen that subtle change, which could have been major for you, but you didn't even realize it was major. So when we look at that returning home for the Buddha, he was able to share his practice with others. He shared his awakening. So what I find particularly interesting about that the father may never been let's say fully accepting of what he saw his son be, became but in a way he was transformed as well he saw through this experience not his son as someone who left him 
became homeless and now is begging for food. It's just completely against what he wanted. But he saw something, if you want to say miraculous, you can, but he saw something extraordinary with his son. He became a religious figure, but someone who achieved something remarkable and he was sharing with others. He became essentially what the father really wanted, a leader. He became, the Buddha became a leader, a religious leader, but a leader nonetheless. And so when we think about it that way, we have to sometimes shift our expectations. Where we, we attach ourselves to these mental images, these expectations, which is always not rooted in reality and the impermanent nature you know, the ever-changing nature of things in our lives as we teach in Buddhism. Because remember, everything arises and falls and changes due to dependent origination. And we have to be aware of that, even though that's very uncomfortable and can be very disruptive to what we expect. And in my particular essay I have here, I talked about returning to a changed world. In this particular one, I referenced the Zen oxarding pictures. And the tenth oxarding picture is basically called returning home or returning to the market, return to society, different translations from it. But essentially, you have the enlightened being returning to a town, if you will. And so throughout these ten oxarding pictures, which are really a great example of the Buddhist practitioner's life of, of reaching enlightenment, I can taming the mind. But this tense one is where they don't remain on, let's say, some cave in a mountaintop somewhere out in the forest. They come back. And you can even look at the prior story by Sanatibhari Bhikkhu, where the Buddha returned to see his father, right? You don't avoid life. You don't avoid these uncomfortable or changed situations. And this is also why, during the Buddhist time, they had alms rounds. Could they have easily have had food brought to the monastery or wherever they lived? Yes, of course, and actually that was offered, you know, many different times. But it was important for the monastics to do that alms rounds, not to beg for food, but to interact with laypersons, to interact with society, and to give teachings, if they wanted it, to the laypersons. And that was a very astute, very very much rooted in leadership perspective. Because if you're detached from society, what are you practicing Buddhism for anyways? Buddhism is practice in the actual real world. And that's what we talked about in our last book as well. So in this tense oxarding picture, what's really, uh, I always find fascinating about it, is that this enlightened beings coming back into the village, right? And we can expect that. We, we saw that, you know, with monastics right now, in the Buddhist time. Okay, right? But this enlightened being can do things that we may look at as against the Buddhist teachings. You know, so we have like precepts, right? We have these particular rules, of like rules of conduct, if you will, for your morality life, right? Well, this enlightened being can go into bars and go into fish markets. He can do these different things where like, well, wait a minute. That's totally against what a monastic or a lighter person should be doing, but not necessarily. In the context of what they're is teaching here, this person is, as I mentioned, a lighted being, right? So they're doing things in an enlightened way, a mindful way. So if they were to go into that bar, 
they're not going into the bar as like an escape or an attachment or anything else. They're doing everything as it relates to the Dharma, to the teachings, to the truth. So they're going in, and there's another term for this 10th oxidating picture, with helping hands. And so they're helping other sentient beings in ways that they normally could not. Imagine if this person was in some like special forces or some uh, gone to this advanced college uh, postdoctorate or something like that they have this knowledge and experience where they're able to help others in a way where for other people they may get caught or cling or crave to different things here they're not going to do that so this person and this is great for us we're going back into society right we're obviously not enlightened beings, or I'm assuming we're not enlightened beings as laypersons. And so, yes, it's going to be difficult for us, but we have to do that. Just like the monastics, who are not all enlightened persons either, they're interacting with society, and all that comes with that, and all the changes with that come with that as well. But they're doing it, and so we have to do that as well. As uncomfortable it is, and while it might be very easy to some degree, or comfortable like I mentioned just maybe stay at home or just have everything delivered to you we have to interact we have to reconnect with people we have to do these things even though these these interactions these relationships these experiences have changed but we also have to evaluate those as well you know has our mind shifted or changed in a different way is it in a positive way a wholesome way or an unwholesome way that may be a, a good self-reflection for for insight for you for your meditation so you might be thinking oh yes you know i'm my my mind is shift i've been awakened to these different truths and understandings where i didn't have that before and this person's wrong or this person's right or whatever it might be is that true or not true we can very easily our mind can very easily tame us instead of us taming our mind. So are we actually understanding things in a very mindful, very Buddhist way? Sometimes we can very much convince ourselves of the opposite of what we actually believe. So that's something to think about as well. But essentially, what we're trying to do with all our Buddhist practice is to cease these three fires of greed, anger, and delusion in our lives. You know, this is just the breeding ground, this, this we put this fuel on there, all these attachments, this clinging, craving, everything. We're putting all this fuel on, on these on these three fires, and it's keeping us trapped in a cycle of rebirth and, and shaping all our our intentional actions, our karma. And so obviously we want to have wholesome karma, not unwholesome karma. But sometimes we're not aware of what we're actually doing. So this tense ox hurting picture is fantastic, I think, in that regard. So what I like to talk about next, I'm going to go briefly over the seven-day practice. And again, you can find this all in more detail inside the actual book. But we cover in a very structured way these different Buddhist teachings as it's related to integration. So we have for day one, we talk about impermanence. Day two, interdependence. Day three, greed. Day four, anger. Day five, loving-kindness. Day six, compassion and generosity. And day seven, helping others. And there's a reason for this. We want you to understand how things will change, how we are connected to other things and events and everything else, this interdependence, but then go into some root causes, such as greed and anger, understanding how that may be shaping our, our mind, our interactions, everything else, 
but how do we stop that? Remember, so we have greed, anger, and delusion, those three fires, right? And so how do we stop that? Well, different ways. And, and two fantastic ways is loving kindness and compassion, generosity. These are hallmarks to virtually every tradition of Buddhism. And these are what basically puts water on that fire. You can't have greed and anger if you have loving kindness, compassion, generosity. It's just not going to happen. So that's why we build up in Buddhist practice this, this morality, this conduct right there. And then finally we end with helping others. Going forth, helping others. That's, that's a very can be a very difficult thing for a lot of people to actually do. So this is a very non-sectarian practice where me and Sanatana Vihari Bhikkhu are in two different branches of Buddhism, but we come we also come together to talk about how we can talk about these Buddhist teachings in a way that will appeal to pretty much all Buddhists as, as best we can. So with day one, we talk about impermanence, and we have a scripture and teaching and meditation for each of these daily practices. As I mentioned, I won't go over necessarily the meditation in this podcast because you're going to find those on Sanatana Vihari Bhikkhu's YouTube channel. But our quote for today is, all conditioned things are impermanent. They are phenomena, subject to birth and death. When birth and death no longer are, the complete silencing is joy. So impermanence is one of those hallmarks of Buddhism. But it's also very scary and uncomfortable for us because we don't like impermanence as sentient beings, especially humans. Impermanence is not something we're okay with, but impermanence actually is something that is good. So if you have something negative, and maybe you look at the pandemic as negative, this virus, well, it's impermanent. It's going to change in different ways. And I think we see that right now at the time of this podcast. There's another variant of it, but we also have seen the pandemic change in different ways. There's also more vaccinated people, more people have been exposed to it. So there's more of a resistance to the the uncontrolled spread, if you will, that we saw last year. So you get to see different components of impermanence that are not necessarily always bad. Maybe an experience is bad, that's impermanent, or something's good or fun, well, that's impermanent too. You you can't have it both you have to have it both ways. It has it's going to be impermanent no matter what. It can be long, it can be short. It just varies. So, the only thing that we can say is not impermanent is nirvana, the, the cessation of greed, anger, delusion, all, all these un, unwholesome activities. It's, nirvana is our true natural state, and that's really the the goal of of Buddhists is to realize nirvana and to be able to interact in that state, and you can you can see that with the, the Buddha's followers, uh, the tense oxfording pictures I talked about. That that's someone who's in in the mental state of nirvana. It allows us to interact in that enlightened way, and so we're seeing what's happened over the course of a year, over a year, the impermanence of a lot of different things, of maybe how we worked and how we interact with people how we view things that's all in, it was all impermanent it's all dependent on causes and conditions and so it's all changed so for the meditation practice that we have for this one it's about instability and impermanence and it's a, it's a great one so again i'm going to refer you to the youtube channel instead of referencing it here in this in this particular episode but basically we want to meditate on instability and impermanence because it is uncomfortable 
it's something we don't like and so the more we are have impermanence and stability in our face the more we're able to realize it when it comes and to not be affected by it when it comes and i think that might be a key component we're usually affected in in many different ways when impermanence and stability just hits us in the face and the pandemic's a great example look what happened then people were hoarding toilet paper and different things right it was just this reaction due to impermanence and instability but how do you react if that's something you've been practicing meditating on for your practice for a long time you'd probably be not as impacted even though it's going to be uncomfortable even though it's can be sometimes scary you're diffusing yourself from being like a bomb that just blows up because that wire that's lit on fire to, to explode that bomb you that fuse you are like a, a bomb at any time where you can just explode due to that fuse so we don't want that fuse to be lit or even if it's lit maybe we want a very long fuse so it can probably we can just like stamp it out before it gets too far down this is what we're trying to do with our practice then we talk about impermanence or excuse me interdependence and so the quote here is people normally cut reality into compartments and so are unable to see the interdependence of all phenomena to see one in all and all in one is to break through the great barrier which narrows one perception of reality so this could also be referred to as interconnectedness different terminology like that and it's, it's especially promoted in Mahayana but essentially what we're talking about here is we can refer back to dependent origination like all things arise and fall to to causes and conditions right well we don't exist independent of other things and other people so even to exist right now I'm dependent on people to farm and to bring stuff to the grocery store and water and clean air and all these different types of things right so we're dependent in sometimes a very operational way to how society works but even just being alone is not a very healthy thing either so we have to have that interaction is relationships with people and things and so there's different different components of here it gets very nuanced sometimes it's so subtle you don't get to actually see it so when we talk about impermanence as it relates to this particular day yes we're talking about uh, topics such as emptiness uh, that we especially have uh, promoted a lot inside Mahayana but it's also found in Theravada but we have to be to, to realize that we are dependent upon other things and people in, in some ways we can't actually identify so don't just disregard things or try to cut yourself off it doesn't really exist we, we're all connected here not like there's some magical string between us but there's this relationship if you want to put it that way between all these different things so we're getting to see as this pandemic kind of wanes or transforms itself the emptiness in, in our society and that allows us to transition into that new society it's almost like a teacup you need it to be empty to fill it up with tea right so emptiness is not a bad thing but we have to understand how to actually basically re-enter to that emptiness if you will for that terminology back into society so 
we do have a, a, a daily meditation practice for this as well and it's going to be a mantra that you can recite for as long as necessary then we have greed so with greed our daily quotation scripture is greed causes sadness greed causes fear if there is no greed how could there be sadness and fear and isn't that true so now we're going sometimes into the the root causes of things right or our actions and our beliefs so when we have this greed or this longing it's one of those three fires in Buddhism I talked about greed anger delusion and so this arises due to our attachments especially to the belief of self but to things that support that so maybe I don't want to feel a certain way okay that could be greed as well or maybe I want something to be like it was before that's greed so greed is this longing for things let's go back to the Buddhist father he was greedy if you want to think about it he was greedy because he wanted that that life he had was the son before did the, that longing to have his son follow in his footsteps that's what he wanted so this attachment we have to things is fuel this this craving right so we want to ensure these fires just don't rage out of control if better yet we want to put out the fires nirvana we want to get rid of it but our daily practice helps us at least keep that fire very low or hopefully just smoldering maybe not raging so we want to continue continue to continue to put out those three fires which includes greed so as we talk about like a meditation practice but even like a daily practice can you identify what you are longing for or greedy for as it relates to what makes you feel comfortable or what you want to occur or how you want things to to be again or whatever else and then realize that impermanence that interdependence on things and understand that that greed we're doing that for this the self but it's not really part of the world that's not how the world works then it brings us to day four anger another component of those three fires in our quotation is overcoming anger brings peace to the mind overcoming anger leads to a mind without regret anger is a source of the poisons that destroy goodness all the Buddhas praise one who has overcome anger when anger has been overcome there no longer will be any anxiety so we talked about greed now we got anger right so sometimes anger could be a result of greed right so like I, I maybe the Buddhist father maybe he's thinking oh this makes me so angry I wanted him to follow my footsteps but here he is begging on the streets and so we're looking at this this hatred and it's it consumes us that these fires these fires are consuming us right and so they're making us sick It's another terminology for three fires is three poisons so it's making us sick and we don't want to be burned or to feel sick right but we are to various nuanced degrees so having this hatred this anger that's not helping you nor is it helping others because your intentional actions your karma is affected by these things and so we have to again this impermanence and interdependence we have to understand this not just at the intellectual level but at the fundamental level because that's how we're going to interact with other people and society so you're going to have Buddhists they, they sometimes repent of their actions before a statue of the Buddha this is very common it's not like we're looking for salvation in this particular way but 
it's a very human nature to be able to get things out, to, to get it out of you, right? And so you can look at these these poisons inside you, greed, anger, you want to get them out of you, right? And so one way to do that is to repent. In some ways, you're repenting to yourself, but you're getting it out, almost like throwing up a little bit. You're getting it out of your system. And you're also, at that same time, you're, as you're bringing this to the surface, you're realizing about maybe that greed or that hatred because you don't want to do that again. You want to be cognizant of that. And as I mentioned on the tense Zen Oxardian picture, that line being, they're not affected by things. They're not swayed by things because they, they're enlightened. They're aware. So things that may have caused them to be angry or greedy before, they don't exist anymore. That delusion's gone. So they're not swayed. And so that's what we want to do there. So that re repentance is actually a great practice as well. But we also have a meditation practice for today, universal benevolence. And so this is a great one. It's basically our antidote to anger, hatred. Uh, and, and that is going to be benevolence and amiability. So this is a great one. It, it goes on for quite a bit. And so again, you get to find this inside the actual guide. Then we go to day five loving kindness. So now we're going to talk about these these ways to counteract greed, anger, and delusion. So loving kindness also referred to as metta uh, or metta meditation. This is a great one here. So the world has changed, right? Guess what? You've changed as well. And so having loving kindness, and this is a very popular fundamental uh, practice and meditation inside Buddhism, so you probably have already been doing this, but this is a great way. Things have changed. But we need to show loving kindness, I think, more than ever right now. And so when we're doing this, we're, we're basically transforming greed, anger, because loving kind, with loving kindness, greed, anger, they really can't sprout. They really can't live with that type of weed killer, if you want to think about it that way in your garden. You can't live with that. It's like an antidote to it. Because with loving kindness, how can you have greed or anger? Because now it's directed in a different way. So Sanatabi Haribiku has uh, the great loving kindness meditation uh, inside the guide. It has four steps. And this is a one you can practice every single day. So you don't have to practice these just on that particular day. It's a great one to continue going on for as long as possible. Then we have compassion and generosity for day six. And the quote is, Bhikkhus, if beings knew, as I know, the result of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would they allow the stain of meanness to obsess them and take root in their minds. Even if it were their last morsel, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there were someone to share it with. And so this is a great one. So I talked about compassion and generosity just a few minutes ago as well. This is very foundational to these different traditions of Buddhism. So you can complement this with loving kindness, metta meditation as well, because it helps really, I think, round out that weed killer, the weed killer of greed, anger, delusion. When you have loving kindness, but also compassion and generosity, that's a powerful one-two punch to those, those three fires, those three poisons. So essentially what you're going to be doing here and the and I kind of refer to this as kind of like a, a cloak. You know, you're, you're cloaking yourself in this compassion, generosity and also loving kindness as you're going forth. 
what we're going to do here is, is a meditation practice, again, that you can find inside the book, where you're focusing on the different levels of not just suffering, but of happiness. So compassion can be directed at not just suffering, dukkha, but also the five levels of happiness. You're building up this armor, this this ability to interact, to go into, go forth into society in a more enlightened way, a more Buddhist way. And then day seven, we have helping others. And the quilt is, thus it is said that by helping oneself, one helps others. And by helping, and by helping others, one helps oneself. Well, wow, isn't that true? So when we look at not just your journey in a seven-day practice, but throughout everything else, Helping others is so foundational, if you will, with with Buddhism and with Buddhists. And so I have inside the guide here related to the fire servant, one of my favorite servants. And so the Buddha famously set aside the, the, the fire servant. All things are burning. So he's talking about all our sense organs are constantly clean and craving. To, they're burning with desire, with all these different things they hear, see, smell, touch, all all these different things. And so that is, guess what? Just like the 10 ox turning pictures where we got this untamed bull, our, our mind, going, making us do different things, those intentional actions, karma. And so we're now returning from our caves to mountaintops. Maybe that's our home where we've been secluded or working from home or whatever you want to call it, right? going back more and more often into society and relationships, right? We have to be on guard to those fuels that fuel the, the greed, anger, delusion, the three fires, right? Because we don't want that. Compassion, generosity, loving kindness, that's what's going to get rid of those. And this is what this, this seventh day is all about. We're going forth into the world. And think about it this way, almost like there's a fire, right? And if you have like a wet blanket, you can throw it over the fire and it'll snuff out the fire, suffocate it. That's what we want. We want to put out those three fires. And we're going to experience those fires raging in different ways in relationships, experiences, work, you name it. But how we interact is going to be really important. So this particular practice is aimed at others, but make sure you also aim it at yourself. You have to help yourself. You have to show loving kindness to yourself. You have to show compassion and generosity to yourself, not just to others. You have to be all-encompassing when it comes to this. So, Siddhartha so Bharibhiku's meditation is, is perfect for this. He has a taking and sending practice. And you probably have heard or done this one before, where basically you're breathing in you know, the suffering of others and transforming it where you're going to breathe out the peace. And this is a, a, a great one where, yes, you're probably not actually transforming some inner component of a person, right? But you're able to do this as you're inhaling it, but then exhaling it. You're allowing your mind to transform it. And then your actions can be different as a result of that. And that, in turn, can maybe also be reflected with that person. They're seeing you in a different way in your mannerisms and your actions and everything else. So we have different ways of practicing that are going to be very purposeful when we talk about reintegrating back into society. So when we look at all of this, we're talking about returning to society in a more 
mindful way in accord with the Buddhist teachings. And the Buddhist teachings provide us everything we need to reintegrate back into society. We may be so excited to reintegrate or just get back out there and do things and realize that not everything's maybe back up to speed yet. And we don't like that, so we get greedy and angry. So there's all these different things going on. And so no matter how you look at it, we have to look at it as as a Buddhist. And don't beat yourself up if like, oh, I was angry just one day or I wasn't very compassionate this way. So I mentioned one of the practice days. You could do repentance. You know, you could repent in front of a Buddha statue. And again, you're not, you're doing this to get it out of you, get these, these poisons, put down this fire, to get it out of you, to also be aware of it in your mind. Go, oh, that's what I did. And this is what I need to be mindful of next time. Because otherwise, guess what your mind wants to do? bury that down in your subconscious or just get rid of it altogether so you're not even aware of it because your mind loves this. Your mind loves to go rampant. It's having a field day right now. So this guide I think will be very beneficial. We have uh, a lot of extras, uh, downloads that come with us as well, including posters. But let's say you're inside a location where you are having some lockdowns again or different circumstances. You can still download our daily practice guide for the pandemic as well, which is still as relevant as ever. But this one is helping you reintegrate back into society. So I would love to hear from you. And also remember to check out Sanati Bihari Bhikkhu's YouTube channel so you can catch those uh, daily meditations. But we also aim to probably put those inside our downloads portal for this particular guide. We have graphics in there, but we're going to hopefully do some videos there as well. So we hope this was beneficial to you and that this new book can help you with these change experiences and relationships in life in general and further your Buddhist practice. Thank you.